Verse number 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Think of this. This is at the time, and I'll get more into this, Persia, still really it's true to this day as far as land mass is concerned, they had the largest world empire uh, that still has ever existed. And uh, so that king is now saying, the Lord God of heaven, Jehovah God, the God, the creator, hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods, with beasts, besides the free will offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Look over in chapter 3 with me, please. Chapter 3. Verse number 1. They are there. The first return of the children of Israel from captivity has taken place, led by a man named Zerubbabel. I'll talk more about him in just a minute. Verse number 1 says, And when the seventh month was come, the children of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. Then stood up uh, Jeshua, the son of uh, Josadak, and his brethren, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of uh, Shilatil and his brethren, and builded the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it was written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Look at verse number 6. This is after the altar has been built. From the first day of the seventh month began they to offer burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar they built, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. Verse number 8. Now in the second year of their coming unto the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month began Zerubbabel the son of Shelatiel and Jeshua the son of uh, Josadak and the remnant of their brethren, the priests and the Levites, and all that were come out of the captivity uh, unto Jerusalem, and appointed the Levites from twenty years old and upward to set forward the work of the house of the Lord. So the building begins on the new temple. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I, I certainly love you. Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, I ask for your blessing and your help this morning. Please give the strength, give the grace. I pray for your grace and mercy, your help, Lord. I pray that that your word would feed your people. Lord, that it would strengthen us, help me stay true to your word. And Lord, may it draw us closer to you. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this morning they would repent and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, seven years prior to this reading was when the nation the, was when the nation of Judah went into captivity. The northern kingdom was basically assimilated and destroyed. But the, the southern kingdom, which comprised of primarily um, those of the tribe of Judah, of Benjamin and Levites, had remained. They had some godly kings, but they too had turned from the Lord. 
And so the time came for God's judgment and chastisement to fall, and they went into captivity for 70 years. And now that 70 years is concluded. It's time for them to return. During that time, of course, the, the, the temple is going to have to be rebuilt. The one that Solomon had built has been destroyed, but they're going to make a new one. And that's the exact right thing to do. It might not be as glorious as it was the first time due to the sin and the memories that they have, but nonetheless, it's so important when you're returning to go ahead and build that temple again. Even if it's not as glorious as it was in your walk with God previously, you still build it again. So I'm going to give some help in this ever-changing culture we have. This culture that is getting farther and farther away from God. And make no mistake about it. So are multitudes of churches. So, when we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, let me give a bit of an overview. It will help greatly with what I'm going to preach about this morning. Of course, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. Ezra is your author of this book. Ezra was, he's one of my heroes in the Old Testament is Ezra. I find him to be an amazing man when you think about what he had to do. The problems that he was dealing with were incredible. The the situations he was facing, the wisdom he would need. He was an amazing man. Um, He's not only the author, obviously, of Ezra and Nehemiah. Again, it's one book in the Old Testament. I believe he is also the author of the most famous psalm of all, Psalm number 119. Again, we don't know who is the author of that. There's, there's different names that are ascribed to it, to, from David uh, to Daniel to Ezra. And when we went through Psalm 119 in this church, when I, when I began that week of preparation and diving into it, I became more and more entrenched in my belief that it was Ezra who is in fact the author of Psalm 119. Um, this, this, the book of Ezra is broken into two sections. Now, this is interesting. This will actually help you when you're reading through the Old Testament. When you have context of what's taking place, it really opens up God's Word to you as you're reading it through your devotions. The book of Ezra is in two distinct sections. You have chapters 1 through 6, which deal with Zerubbabel and the building of the temple. All right? 7 through 10 changes gears. That's where you get into Ezra. The pastor comes into play now. The one now the temple is built, and now the man to feed them the Word of God is in place, and he's the one who tries to get the world out of the nation and get them back on course according to the Word of God. He had some great challenges ahead of him. Between chapters 6 and 7, there's a gap in time. There's a gap in time of almost 60 years takes place. It's during that 60 years that you have the events of the book of Esther take place. The prophets, when you're reading through the Old Testament at this time, of, of what's taking place is going to be Zechariah and Haggai, even just about getting into Malachi. When Nehemiah comes on the scene, it's not long after the time of Nehemiah that you go into the 400 silent years. <clears throat> The seven years of captivity is up from Jerusalem. Chapter 1, as we just read, starts out with King Cyrus, who was the king of Persia, um, um, making a decree that, those, that, the, that the Jewish nation who have been captive for 70 years may return. They can go back home. And even instructs them, not only do I want you to go back home, but I want the temple rebuilt. Now remember... We go all the way back when they went into captivity. You had the prophet at the time who would be Daniel, um, Jeremiah, 
They went into captivity under uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. Babylon is no longer the world power. Um, it is now Persia. Again, Persia is considered the most powerful kingdom of the ancient world. And I love the portion. World history from this time around Ezra to Nehemiah to the time of Christ, it is fascinating at what takes place. Because who's going to defeat the Persians? That's going to be the Greek Empire. Who's going to defeat the Greek Empire? That's going to be the Romans. Do you understand? All this, all this is in preparation for the arrival of the Messiah, of the foundation from logistics, everything that God was orchestrating from heaven to take place for when the Savior would arrive. But Persia's kingdom was enormous. It covered 2.9 million square miles. It spanned three continents. Asia, Africa, and Europe. They were the largest empire in the ancient history. It is estimated, think about this, in the ancient world, that in 480 B.C., so this is around our time frame right now, they had 50 million people living under its authority, which would have been at that time about half of the world population. Enormous empire. And so this man, King Cyrus, the largest empire the world has known, God uses this man to make a decree the temple gets rebuilt. Those who are God's people, they go home. Send them home. Rebuild the temple. Cyrus obeys. Isn't it amazing that statement there where he proclaims the God, by the, with the God of Israel? He is God. He is God. Do you think he grew up knowing that? Absolutely not. <clears throat> there are a total of three times a group returns from Babylon to Jerusalem. Again, I've already mentioned it, under Zerubbabel will be first, Ezra will lead the second return, Nehemiah will lead the third return. This is what's incredible. The population, we're not certain, but it is estimated that the Jewish population in the Babylonian or Persian Empire at this time was approximately one million or close to it. Of the one million, only 50,000 returned. 50,000. Not even 10%. Zerubbabel, the man who leads the first return, he is in David's kingly line. The Lord knew who he'd have in place for this. He's a leader. He's, he's, he's equipped for the task that God has given him. He leads the first return in approximately 538 B.C. Ezra will lead the next return just about... Almost 100 years later, 458 B.C., Nehemiah in 445 B.C. will be his return. So the three returns happen over about a 90-year time frame. Again, what is amazing to me is how few of those of the nation of Israel actually return to Jerusalem. Remember how dreaded it was 70 years prior. The humiliation, the shame of being taken captive. Jerusalem is destroyed. The weeping over the city. They're heading out, embarrassed, shameful, slaves, taken to captivity. Here it is, 70 years later. They're set free. But very few return. You would think they'd be begging to get back, but that is not the case. Now, I want you to keep a question in mind as we go through this. I almost changed the name of this this morning. And that is this. Would you go back? 
Would you go back? Would you be in this minority of the people of God wanting to get back to the Lord regardless of the cost? Even in our churches today, I often wonder, and this has been true, not just of our day, I could break this out from, for the last 2,000 years, to be honest. I mean, we, we tend to pick on our generation, understandably so. We're seeing such massive changes in our culture and churches trying to figure out what's right and what's not as these cultural shifts take place. And the answer, by the way, is clear. It's right here. But I wonder what the percentages of people who would go back, of those who genuinely have a heart for God, I wonder how many of those could honestly say as the psalmist did in Psalm 42 and verse 1, as the heart panteth after the water brooks, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. How many men do we have today? How many uh, ladies do we have today who actually get it and they put God genuinely first? How many of our youth simply want what God wants for their life and not all the attractions that this world offers them? How many people actually get it? We live in a day of great compromise. It has caused division. It has caused confusion as to what is right and what is wrong. With this message, I want to try and give help for returning to God. Or to be one of those when you're put in that situation that, that, you know, that you don't even have to get to that place in your life. Where you are taken captive. Where you have been assimilated by the world. I want to provide that guidance for getting back to the place God would have you to be. I want to provide guidance to getting, to getting, to, to, to getting in and staying in the will of God. We have great help for this in our text. I'm not sure if I'll get through all this this morning or not. I might. I, I just. I really don't know. If not, I, I will finish it up next week if that is the case. We have to remember, Babylon is a picture of the world in Scripture. It's what it is. Okay, it's a picture of the world. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we see what is needed if we are to be successful to separate from the world. And the keys we're going to look at here this morning are going to be twofold, and then I will follow up with another message. That certainly won't be today, I know that, but I will follow up with another message that might even be this evening. I'm not sure how the Lord's directing yet. And that is, one, we need to start with an altar. Then we need to build the temple in our life. And then we need to build a wall to protect it. <clears throat> so, usually I have all my sermons alliterated and whatnot. This, this one is not. Uh, but first point is this. Why? Why so few? Why did so few go back or not go back? 
or excuse me, why did so few go back and so many remain? Why? Why did so few seek to go back? Listen, in this there is a great lesson for us. I want you to listen to me right now. It is easy to get into sin. It's easy. It is much more difficult to get out. It is easy to go the way of the world, but it is much more difficult to get out. It is easy to start on the road to carnality in your life. It is much more difficult to leave it. It is much easier to compromise in your life. It is much more difficult to stop from compromising. Let me give an illustration like with your children, if you're parents. This is one of the, one of the principles that I use when parenting all my kids. It's much easier in your home to have a standard in place at the very beginning instead of trying to introduce it later on. Much easier. In other words, let's just say, let's just say I can, I can use whatever, it's technology, I can use people, it doesn't matter. Let's just say you know that there's something in the neighborhood you know that is not the right influence for your kids. It's much easier if you set the standard to begin with that that's not happening then you wait when you see the damage taking place then to go in and try and set the standard. That's much more difficult, even though it's needed, even though it still has to be done, but that's much more difficult. It's easy to be assimilated into the culture of this world. It is. It's all around us. I mean, we have movements within independent Baptist churches that are literally teaching the churches how to act like the world in the name of evangelism. It's not how much I look and talk like the world that makes a difference. What I need to look and talk like is a man with wisdom from God. Because salvation is in the gospel. It's in that message. It's easy to get into the snare of sin. But it's oh so difficult to get out of it. There is great danger when we begin to head down the wrong path. You can even get to a, a place where in the book of James talks about this in James chapter 1. Think about this. You can deceive your own heart. That's a scary place to be, isn't it? I remember as a teenager when I was, many of you know my testimony, some of the visitors here do not, but when I began to take this serious after my freshman year and, I, and I, we had a new pastor come in and, and I just wanted to serve God. I mean, I got it. I understood. I'd already, I'd already put my faith in Christ. Church without a pastor. The new pastor comes in. So between my freshman year and sophomore year of high school and a public school, my life greatly changed. You know one of the things that was distressing to me though? And that was within the youth group. When, when, I, when I began understanding, that, I mean, I was getting it. Life is all about God. And that was what I wanted all of a sudden. Don't think I didn't have as a teenager different dreams and ambitions of what I wanted to do. There was plenty there. But when I looked between the Creator and that, it was an easy choice. It was. 
It wasn't like, wait, wait, what's the, what's the two choices here? It's like either the teenager just went to Cedar Point. True analogy in my life. It was either like going to play in this little park back around the church or going to Cedar Point. It's a no-brainer. It's not even close what I'm going to do. But one thing that I struggled with as a teenager, new in the faith, hardly knowing much from the Word of God, but getting into it now every day, was in our youth group of 25 to 30, it would fluctuate. I didn't know of any who were taking it serious. I didn't. I didn't know of any. And, and all of a sudden, you're into this, and that's starting to cause divisions. That's starting to think, we're, we're, they're trying to attack me like I'm trying to be holier than now because many of the activities I won't go to, like I'm trying to appear better than them. I wasn't. They had no idea how much that hurt, how much I, I wanted to throw up at night. I just wanted to do right. The problem was it was so easy. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's philosophy when he took nations captive. He, he had, I have a sermon actually, I preached a whole separate one from Daniel chapter 1. What he tried to do wasn't keep you in slaves and bondage and working. He tried to make you very comfortable so you didn't want to leave. That was his philosophy. It worked. Do you understand that Satan's exact philosophy when he puts you in bondage, you don't even recognize it? He wants you comfortable in the world. He wants you to think there's nothing wrong with it, that it's right. And so we see a principle here with why so few went back is that it's so easy to be assimilated and be conformed to the world, but it can be much more difficult coming out. And that leads to the next point, of uh, same under point number one still, why so few go back. The truth is, because of the philosophy of Nebuchadnezzar, they became comfortable in the world. They had a comfortable life in Babylon. They were making money. Things were easy. Really, it seemed they forget about the need of the temple. We don't start off with, with 100,000 uh, uh, men of Israel praying and begging King Cyrus, we need the temple back, let us go. It almost seems they forgot about their own history. We see that taking place today. They forgot how important the temple was. The devil will do what he can to get you to forget how important the temple is in your life. I'm not talking about church. The temple represented the presence of God. The devil will do all that he can to get you to negate your need, the necessity, the presence of God, of that walk with him in your life. Their children were learning the ways of Babylon, and they didn't want to go back. You keep allowing your children to learn the ways of Babylon, it's dangerous. They'll get comfortable in that. It's much easier, again, to prevent it ahead of time than trying to take it out. The truth is they were enjoying the culture of Babylon. 
Next, what else could be a possible reason why so few returned? And I'm dealing with all the returns, not just the one under uh, Zerubbabel. That one's a, a little bit more understandable. The other two are not at all with Ezra and Nehemiah. But here's the truth as well. Know what they knew? It would take sacrifice to return. It would. It would take great sacrifice if they were going to return. And many were not willing to make that sacrifice. The journey was about 900 miles. There was a shorter, there's actually a shorter course of about half that distance. Uh, um, but there, that, was, that was way too dangerous. That way was not going to be taken. So the common route was a 900 mile journey that would take at least four months to accomplish. Many today, when they see the sacrifice it takes to serve God, they don't want that journey. They don't want that journey in their life. They're comfortable. They knew when they arrived, there's going to be a whole lot of work. We've got to rebuild the city. We've got to rebuild the wall. We've got to rebuild the temple. I'm established. I'm good. It's okay. I'm just comfortable here in the world. What they forgot? No, his life is all about the Creator and their responsibility to the entire world in being God's people. But they got comfortable in the world. Listen, the comforts of this world are not worth are not even close to worth the sacrifice involved in staying close to God. It's true, when we're serving God, it involves suffering, it involves sacrifice, but oh my, is it so worth it. I mean, who wants a cheap religion? Again, I think of the words of David as we conclude Second Samuel when he had sinned against the Lord and, and the Lord put his chastisement and David is begging him to stop and he tells David, you make a sacrifice, I'm going to stop it. And remember, Aruna came and said, listen, he goes to Aruna to offer the sacrifice and Aruna is pleased. David is there. Here is the instruments. Here is the oxen. And David, all that you need for your sacrifice, I'm giving it to you. It's yours. Do you know the vast majority of Christians would say right there, look, God has provided it's exactly what they would say. What did David tell him? Oh, no, 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 no. I'm paying for it. I'm buying it. He says, and he tells him, I will not offer burnt offerings. I will not make a sacrifice unto the Lord my God of that which does cost me nothing. So few return because it would involve sacrifice. It would involve suffering. It would involve work. It would involve a complete change and then being assimilated there in Babylon to the world. They would be different. Chapter 3 of Ezra. Those who chose to go out on the first return with Zerubbabel Zerubbabel gets to work along with Jeshua. And the very first thing we see they do in verse 2, in the second half, it says, And builded the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings thereon, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. The return takes place. They're there. They have arrived. Zerubbabel assembles all the people. says, This is the first thing we're going to do. 
We're building an altar. That's the first thing in your life. In order to return back to God, in order to get your life back to where it needs to be, or you need this constant, of course, in your life, if you're not going to be assimilated into the world. It protects both ways. And that is, it starts with the building of an altar. The first thing you need to do in coming to God is getting your heart right, is dealing with sin. So first off, if you're here this morning and you have never, never truly been converted by that repentance and faith in Christ, that is always the first step to God. It's the most important one. You have to understand, one day you will die and stand before Almighty God. He will judge you. That's Hebrews 9.27. That's not a game. That's not a joke. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a story. One day you will die. Your soul will separate from your body. And a time frame after that, you will stand before Almighty God in judgment. You're not going to speak of that judgment. He's just going to show you why you're guilty every time you've broken His law. And 100% of those who are guilty are cast into a lake of fire. That sin has to be dealt with. You say, well, how? You see, you know what's amazing? Think about this and frightening. It's God's requirement. Don't miss this. It's perfection. It's not that your good works outweigh your bad works. It's not that you're a member of a church. It's not that you're trying. It's not that you've turned over a new leaf. Do you understand that His requirement is perfection? If you offended in one point of the law, the Bible says you've broken it all. Stop seeing your sin from your own eyes and you better start seeing your sin from the Creator's eyes. You will be found guilty. He's not going to say, you know what, you and I had our own thing worked out. You're a pretty good guy. That's not going to happen. He's going to judge you. His standard, His requirement is perfection. And yet He knows none of us are perfect. Not one. None of us. It's almost like God had a dilemma. Just allow me, give me the privilege of saying that right now. I know He really didn't. He's sovereign. He knew what He was going to do the entire time. But for the sake of our feeble, sinful minds, it's as if God had a dilemma. My standard is perfection. When I judge them, it will be a separation for me in an eternal lake of fire. That's real. But He loved us. And he said, I'm not willing that any should perish. He had to come up with a way that satisfied justice and love. He did just that. Now what he did? He became a man. The second Adam. He became a man. God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke it in this incredible universe came into existence. He becomes a man. He lives on this earth for 30-some years. And know what he was? Perfect. Perfect. He is the only man that has ever lived on this earth who could stand before God the Father at Judgment Day. And you know what the Father could proclaim? You're innocent. You're innocent. I find no fault. Isn't it amazing at Christ's judgment how that was proclaimed over and over and over. He's innocent. He's innocent. I find no fault. He's innocent. Now get this. This is, this is where grace and love come in. He lived 
that perfect life for you. You see, he went to the cross. This was all designed by a sovereign God to satisfy justice in order to save you from judgment. When he went to the cross, God placed upon him the sin of us all. All of our sin was placed upon him. The Bible says, speaking of the cross and what happened that day in Calvary, it says, for God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he placed upon his son your sin, my sin, and he judged Christ in your stead. He took your place in judgment, literally. But hell didn't hold him. After three days and three nights, he defeated death and rose again from the dead. That verse also says this. He took your sin to give you his perfect life. For he hath made him to be sin for uh, for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He takes your sin and he gives you his perfect life. That's what we mean when we say Christ died for you. And he offers that salvation for what he did as a gift. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. If you'll come to him in repentance and faith, he will save you. And that's where that walk with God starts. Right there. Now, if you've already made that decision, this altar still applies to us. There are so many times we have to humbly come before God with repentance and asking for forgiveness. Following the principle we see in verses like Hebrews 12, 1, let us lay aside the weight and sin which just so easily beset us. You have to have that altar set up in your life where you are willing with a true heart to deal with your sin before God. And then, after the altar is built, the very next step is to build the temple. Build the temple. We see that taking place, verses 6 down through 10. I'm not going to read it again for time's sake, but this is where Zerubbabel, they, they get the people together, the foundation is laid, the work on the temple begins. You don't just you don't stop with confessing sin. It doesn't end there. That's a start. We start with the confession of sin. We start with the repentance. And then it's on to the temple. You get the foundation down. You start to get it built. But you don't start without first dealing with sin. Many struggle with sin. They confess. They're not playing a game. They're not being hypocritical. They mean it. But they struggle and struggle and struggle. You want to know why? You never build the temple after. The temple isn't built. So the world still has them. They confess, but the grip of the world is too strong. You have every intention of getting right, but you fail over and over and over. 
You find yourself struggling and wanting to return, but the power to be able to do it isn't there. That gets into Romans chapter 7 as well. You've got to build the temple. Now listen to me. This is where many of us go wrong. We skip a step. You confess and you mean it. And then you get active ministry and serving. But if you skip the step of building that temple, oh, you're in for a collapse. When we get busy doing things in our service for God, but we forget we can forget to build the temple. Listen to me. Do not mistake activity for spirituality. Do not. Do not mistake activity and being busy and busy and busy about the things of God for genuine spirituality. Many will confess and mean it and they jump into activity, but there is no temple established. A genuine, strong walk where the presence of God is what their life is all about. You can be very busy and very carnal. It's when your activity becomes about you, not the temple. Pride-based. When the activity or becomes about the need for feeling involved. Because we all need that. And so the activity comes into play, not because of the temple, not because of the presence of God, not for the right motivation, but either for pride or just the need to be involved. The motive becomes corrupt. When critical instead of spiritual, there's no temple. We just don't need to be in Jerusalem. We need the temple there. We just don't need to be where we're supposed to be with God, but then we need His presence. We need it to be about Him. Again, the temple was where the presence of God was. It was where, where they would meet with God. The place of intercession. is where God was real. They were reminded of Him. The all, the holiness was all evident. Our life and our service need to be about God and for God. You need to have that place in your life where you know the presence of the Lord in your life. You just don't confess sin and get active, but you draw close. Allowing your activity to flow from that. It's people seeking Him because they want to know Him above all else. Our churches today are turning to the ways of the world to begin to uh, uh, come up with different ways of reaching men while the answer actually lies in our prayer closets. While the answer to reaching this world uh, uh, um, is, is getting back to the presence of God in our life. Where we have some wisdom from God, some genuine spirituality when we do talk with others and those that the Lord puts before us. Listen, we don't need to set up a rock band in here or need to go get tattooed up and preach from jeans in order to reach this world.
My dress reflects my belief in my service before a holy and righteous God that he deserves my best, not what's casual. Let me cover this, and I'll probably finish here. When we get into chapter 4, look what happens in chapter 4. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then came they to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto him, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do. And we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Asher, which brought us up hither. But Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God. Boy, in our culture today, they would think, wow, how rude of them. How rude. Why did they not let them? Oh, this was a critical decision in the success of the temple being built. He says, you have nothing to do with us to build a house unto our God, but we ourselves together will build unto the Lord our God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate. It goes on. So here's what takes place next. The devil realizes the temple's being rebuilt. The decision's been made. The dedication is there. The work has begun. You know what comes next? Hindrances, frustrations, difficulties, challenges. These are Samaritans that were coming down. And Zerubbabel, they recognize, no, no, no. This, this is not about true sincerity. We see how you actually are. This is not about a genuine heart for God that's coming on, that's taking place right now. We will not have you part of this. You can see their true heart right after. It wasn't, listen, we understand. If there's anything we can do to help, let us know. Oh, no, their bitterness came out immediately. Oh, you won't let us help, will you? Well, we'll stop it. You can see who they really were, which Zerubbabel knew. He recognized it. He recognized it. Be ready for hindrances, be ready for adversaries. They actually caused the work of the temple to stop for 16 years. 16 years. No work got done. It was through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah that it continued. That's your context for those uh, minor prophets. Once you have determined, listen, I need that presence of God, I need that temple, I need that right in my life. Listen, hindrances will come to stop it. All of a sudden you determine, listen, I'm going to get my walk right, I'm going to start my right devotion. You know what happens? Your, your work schedule changes. I mean, hindrances come in immediately. There's going to be battles that take place. Don't be ignorant of the devil's devices. All of a sudden fighting comes in with your mother-in-law. All of a sudden fighting comes in with your spouse. Hindrances will come. And listen, be careful of this. Many times the enemy tries to friend you first. You need the wisdom of God. 
Many times the enemy tries to befriend you first. Again, those of Samaria were lying. And actually desire God. There is much out there in this world that claims to be your friend in the Christian walk, but it's really your enemy. It's really just to keep you assimilated to the world. It's really there just to distract you. When it looks like it wants to walk with you. Listen, be careful of those hindrances. Now, I think I'm going to stop there, but we'll continue this. I want to, still want to give, when we get back to this message, help for maintaining the temple. It's built for trying to keep that presence of God real in your life and then tying that into the wall that needs built to protect it. With heads bowed.